it's uh, it is so strange. It's just strange coming onto site here this morning, and as it was last week. And the place is empty. There's no cars to have to navigate through. There's no people to have to kind of bump up against. It's just Brett looking at me through the window there, and a few others around the place. So uh, it is a very strange time. Uh, don't get used to it. Uh, I don't think it'll be hard for many of us, but don't get used to it. Uh, as last week I said, many of us are largely untouched by the events. It's just a kind of an unconventional time and uh, we're inconvenienced a little bit, but uh, it does feel like we've dropped into a movie, doesn't it? A disaster, tragic movie that suddenly Hollywood's been. We're part of it now. But for others of you, it is very, very real. And uh, we are really conscious of how many people are hurting right at the moment. Uh, how many of you are wondering how you're going to pay the bills? Uh, how many of you are actually deeply concerned about what if the virus comes to you? What happens to you? Uh, what will that mean? It is a terrible time and a time we need to take very seriously and be quite serious about. Uh, it, and just the treatment we're going through at the moment as a society is itself devastating. Uh, we've got uh, a, a time in history that is quite remarkable and quite extraordinary. But in the midst of it all, there are some positives. And uh, you want to get this right. We want to pray for this to end. We want to ask the Lord as we have uh, for his graciousness that he might stop this time. But in the midst of it, there is something powerfully good that can come through from it. Um, I don't know, like you, I get sent various articles and so on, but someone sent me an article from the New York Times, which is not a thing I read at all, but it had a paragraph in the article that said this, there's a new introspection coming into the world. Everyone I talk to these days seems eager to have deeper conversations and ask more fundamental questions like, are you ready to die? If your lungs fill up with fluid in a week from Tuesday, would you be content? What would you do if a loved one died? Now, they are big questions, aren't they? And they're questions we ought to be wrestling with at all times in our life because life is so uncertain. But this is a time, by God's kindness, a, a terrible, difficult kindness, but a kindness that gives us an opportunity to actually be pushed to reflect on those important questions and to pursue them. You know, um, man called Warren Buffett, uh, he's one of the richest men in the world. He, he was talking about people's investment strategies and he, he was talking about how uh, people do all kinds of dumb investment strategies and he made this comment. He said, uh, when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. And it's one of those clever little sayings you'd expect from a clever bloke, but what he was offering is that when the financial system breaks down, you can see who's over... Uh, exposed in their financial strategies and uh, will be revealed for that. But here it is, when all of life crashes, when the tide goes out on life, you'll see whether or not your life is built on something solid. You'll see then whether or not we have been taken in by the illusion of secularism, which has no substance and depth to it. You see, hidden in all of this pain, and it is pain that we pray the Lord might end soon, but hidden in it all is a blessing, and it's the blessing to pursue big questions in life. 
And without much planning on our part, uh, the scriptures that we'd planned many months ago to come to uh, during this time, Matthew 19, we'd been in Matthew's gospel, we're entering back into it now. Last week was of course a special week, but we're stepping back into the part that we'd left. We hadn't got to yet in Matthew's gospel in our journey through it. And the part we come to in Matthew 19 uh, is actually a part of the scriptures that speak directly to this question. Did you hear it when Chris read it for us? Verse 16, a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? There is the big question in life, isn't it? What must I do to get eternal life? Behind all of the different things we challenge with all the struggles of life is this massive question. And as the paper said, when your lungs fill up with fluid, are you ready? I want to dig into this with us. And if you're here uh, tuning in for the first time, it might be that... um, You've been prompted or encouraged to kind of, to kind of tune in to church this morning. Um, this crisis has perhaps thrown up for you a readiness to praise God for that. Uh, it's a gift to have time to think, to have time to reflect on the big things of life. Don't, let's not waste this. And praise God, we've actually got the words of Jesus that we can go to and get past all the church ideas, all the kind of fluffy Christian thinking and get down to what Jesus actually thought. Praise God for that. We're going to do that. If you're here because you're usually here, praise God for that too. This is one of those passages that's fundamental, but not basic. If basic means boring, it's deep, and we're going to step right into it this morning together. My plan is to take you through this passage in five steps. Make five. It's a five-point sermon. I'm sorry about that. I know you've got kids. In fact, why don't you pause the live feed now and go grab a coffee and put the kids in a room and lock the door and come back out. But... Uh, Let's, uh, let's dig through this together. I'm going to take you through five steps. The first one is this. They'll go fairly quickly. The first one is this. This whole section from verse 16 down to the end of the chapter reflects on the issues of life after death. It uses a bunch of different phrases that all point to that same reality. What hope do we have for life after death? That the man's question is exactly that. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? It's probably better actually translated. What good thing must I do to gain the life to come? To gain the life of eternity? To gain the life of the age to come? Jesus and his disciples use different phrases later. You can see it there in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven... Verse 24, to enter the kingdom of God. These are all different ways of saying the same thing, to gain the life of the age to come, to enter the kingdom, to gain the life of the age to come. The disciples then later, actually verse 27, what, um, verse uh, 25, who then can be saved? It's another way of saying the same thing. How can I gain the life of the age to come? How can I be saved? How can I enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? These are all points that are driving us to the same issue. And it's a small thing, but important thing as we start. It's helpful to see how much of Jesus' teaching is orientated towards that future reality. He doesn't come to be a life coach. He doesn't come to give you your best life now. He doesn't come even to make this world a better place. He comes to create a new world. He comes to save us. 
for the life of the age to come. He comes to make a new creation and to win us to be part of that with him forever, such as his love for us. You know, many of us at the moment are just concerned about surviving life here and now. But this is a reminder, a deeply important reminder, there are bigger issues than this life just now. This is massive. And this time kind of elevates our sense of our need to reflect on these bigger issues. And it's massive too because of the second point I want to make. There's the first one, second point. Not every road leads to heaven. It is popular to imagine that if there is a life to come, everyone except the most evil amongst us will be okay. So as long as we're decent, as long as we're good parents, as long as we, it'll all be okay. This is one of those passages that kind of pulls that apart and shows it for what it is. It's, a, it's quite a deep and powerful passage. Follow the conversation with me. Verse 16. Um, just then a man came up to Jesus, what good thing must I do to get eternal life, to gain the life of the age to come? Verse 18, Jesus says, uh, well, halfway through, he says, if you want to enter life, that is the age to come, keep the commandments. He says, which ones? Verse 18. Jesus then offers uh, a series of commandments that come out of the Ten Commandments, actually the second half of the Ten Commandments. He adds in there the final summation statement to love your neighbour as yourself. Keep these commandments. Verse 20, the young man says, all of these I've kept. What do I still lack? Now pause right there. I've kept all of these commandments. Now, whether he has or not, we'll come to in a second. But um, interestingly, Jesus doesn't pursue it. But he recognises that despite having, in his own mind at least, kept all of the commandments, he still recognises there's something he lacks. What do I still lack, he says. Jesus answers... If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. A passage, we'll, a verse we'll look at in a moment. Jesus agrees with him that he lacks something. In fact, in the parallel passage in Luke's account of this same incident, uh, Jesus says, the one thing you lack is. Jesus agrees with him that he does lack something. Now, let's not go past this too quickly because it makes a fundamentally important point that law-keeping will not enable you to gain eternal life. It won't save you. It won't enable you to enter the life of the age to come. Now, that is a radical thought. Why not? Two reasons. Very quickly. The first one is because our law-keeping is never good enough. Now, Jesus doesn't pick this man up on it, but the rest of the Bible, the rest of the New Testament particularly, draws very clear attention to the fact that there is no one righteous, not even one. That there is no one who keeps the law. All of our efforts are shot through. And in fact, the better we do it, the more proud we are about it. And so we destroy it with our pride. Law-keeping will not get you there because it in of itself is inadequate. But secondly, it's the wrong direction to go. God is not an impersonal examiner 
who is simply keeping score with people so that the person with the highest ATAR gets in. God is a father who has made us for relationship. And impersonal law keeping is totally unimpressive. Now that comes out in the next point, but I want to pause and just make this very clear. This whole concept I'm wrestling with here and the text is wrestling with this for us that law keeping is inadequate. Law keeping still means you lack, runs counter to perhaps the most popular misunderstanding of Christianity in our community today. If you were to go and just, well, I was going to say, if you go to the local shopping centre and talk to anyone, you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone to talk to. But if you go to the local somewhere and talk to people about what they understand the Christian faith is saying, it's almost a universal sense that most people have that Christians are teaching that if you're good enough, you'll get to heaven. That, that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches no one's righteous, not even one. Jesus affirms that law-keeping still means a person lacks. And interestingly, the young man who came to Jesus knew in his own mind, believed in his own mind he'd kept the law, but he still came to Jesus saying, what do I lack to gain eternal life? He had an instinct that there was something still missing. And I think many people have that intuition. Many people live with the sense that there has to, there's, there's something about my life that's not enough to stand before this God. That's a good intuition. It's one that Jesus affirms. Well, if it's not law-keeping, if it's not about obeying commandments to earn your, what is it about? Well, that's the next point, the third point. And let me just give you a heads up. I'll tell you what it's about. The key, the key to life with God, gaining eternal life is relationship with Jesus. You see, look at Jesus' answer there in uh, verse 21. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, I want to suggest to you it's the last piece of verse 21 that's the key. Come, follow me. The first two pieces aren't some kind of new rule. Uh, You know, like, uh, it's not as if Jesus is saying, you've kept the commandments, that gets you nine-tenths of the way. Here's the tenth piece you need to do, which is keep this new rule, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and then you'll be... It's not as if Jesus is saying this is another new rule that you need to obey. Why do I think that's the case? Well, because in parallel passages, say in Luke's account you have uh, immediately after this same incident, Luke records for us Jesus talking to a man called Zacchaeus who was so captured by the Lord Jesus, so desirous to follow him that he sold half his possessions. And Jesus says of him that salvation's now come to your house. But he didn't sell everything like this man was told to sell everything. So what do you have in the New Testament? Jesus speaks a different word to different people, not because the new rule is sell everything, but because what he's trying to do is diagnose the thing that's stopping you do the key piece, which is following him. The key thought here is follow me. And here is the way that the divine surgeon goes to the heart of the issue and says, will you make me so central to your life that you'll give up everything else to follow me. There is the key thought here. 
And so the challenge to sell his possessions and then come follow Jesus is him actually opening up this man to see what he truly lacks. And what does he truly lack? It's not law-keeping. What he truly lacks is a heart that sees Jesus for who he is and values him as he ought. As the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who comes to establish his kingdom forever where he'll be the king, the one that we ought to sell all we have to follow, the one who is so infinitely extraordinary and precious and powerful that he is to be the centre of our lives. Do you see, this taps us into a massive truth. Christianity is Christ in a way that no other religion is its founder. Buddhism is not Buddha. A Buddha comes giving some insights about the way to be freed from the cycle of grief and pain and suffering. But Buddha doesn't say, it's me you follow. Buddha says, here's some thoughts you're to follow. Muhammad is not Islam. Muhammad is simply a prophet who directs us towards what he believed the truth of God was. But Jesus comes saying, not just that there is a truth to learn about, but he comes saying, I am the truth. I am the way. He who believes in me will have eternal life. Christianity is Christ in a way that no other religion is tied to its founder. If you take Buddha out of Buddhism, you still had the philosophy of Buddhism. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, you have nothing left. Life was made, says Jesus, for him. We were, Colossians chapter 1, made by him and for him. And our great need is to, as he teaches, repent, turn away from self-rule and turn to him as our Lord because he is and he is good and to come under his lordship. That's why the question to the disciples throughout the Gospels climaxes on the question of Matthew chapter 16, who do people say I am? Because it's how you understand who Jesus is that you go to the very heart of what's most important in the universe. Jesus comes saying, who do people say I am? And then he presses them and says, who do you say I am? Because that's critical. And here's why law keeping isn't at the heart of Christianity. A person can keep the rules, but have no heart for the one who sets the rules. Many years ago, a friend of mine um, who was uh, talking to a a group of people shared this uh, little illustration. He asked the group, Uh, which kind of child would you rather have? He said, um, what kind of teenager would you rather have? Would you rather have a teenager who um, does all the jobs around the house, you know, keeps the bed clean, uh, empties the dishwasher, when he borrows the car, he puts petrol back in it again and mows the lawn and puts the garbage out, does all the jobs, but never talks to you. Would you rather have that teenager or the one who is warm to you, relates to you, honours you, submits to you when you call him to, 
but relates warmly to you as a parent, child, in a loving relationship, which child would you rather have? Now, some of you are thinking to yourself at the moment, I wouldn't mind just the one who makes the bed. <laughs> but, uh, but my friend shared this story amongst a group and uh, he, said, uh, he said one mother came up to him at the end of it and said, I have that first child and it's devastating. I, I would rather him not do so many things but actually warmly relate to me. Friends, what, what is being offered here is that I'm suggesting Christianity is not about rule-keeping. It's about a loving God having made us to live with him and for him in relationship with him, with his son, the Lord Jesus, as the one who is at the centre of our lives. It's about relationship with the lawgiver, submitting gladly to him, wanting him to shape and order things. You see, there's the third point. Christianity is not law-keeping. It's about a relationship with Jesus. Let me give you the fourth. Why is relationship with Jesus so hard to establish? You know, it's, it's extraordinary here that in this account, this man comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to get the life of the age to come? He is clearly conscious he has something that he lacks. He wants eternal life. He's aware of how serious it is. He's come to Jesus to find out about the answers. They have a conversation about what uh, needs to happen and what needs to be done. He says, all of these things I've kept, what still do I lack? And Jesus says, the thing you lack is following me. But look at the man's response. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Here is a man who seemed to know exactly what was at stake, who heard very clear from Jesus that it's not about law keeping, it's about relationship with him, it's about following Jesus. It's about giving up everything to make him central in his life. And upon hearing that, the man goes away sad because he couldn't bring himself to do it. Why? Jesus actually offers a deeper thought a little later there in verse 23. He said to the disciples, truly I tell you it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now <laughs> don't get caught up on whether there's some uh, uh, hole in Jerusalem that's called the eye of the needle that a camel has to get. To. No, no, He's, it's a proverbial saying that says it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. In fact, he says ex explicitly that. Um, it, it, what, with man, this is impossible. Um, why is it impossible for a rich man to sell everything he has and come follow Jesus? Well, it's because he has great wealth. But how does wealth make it hard? And friends, here is the thing to reflect deeply on. And I, I'd encourage you to actually 
do it in your home. Um, you, you know, at some point, uh, turn to each other and say, yeah, what is it with wealth? What, what, what is it about wealth that makes it so difficult? Now, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly here what is it about wealth that makes it difficult. So I, I'm going to offer you my own observations, but I'd urge you to actually reflect yourself on why it is. Why, why, why when this man knows what's at stake, uh, all that's required is for him to so follow Jesus that he leaves everything else behind. Why can't he leave those things behind? I'll give you a couple of reasons why I think it's the case, but I just do this for your own sake to think and reflect. I want to suggest to you it's because of what money does. Money, money is liquid power. Money gives us the power to make choices and be in control of our lives. One of the things that wealth brings is the ability now to take control and do what I choose to do instead of being forced by circumstances to do what others want me to do. Money gives me that power. Money is liquid power. Poor people find themselves, they, are, they lack power. Wealth brings power with it. But it and so appreciating that helps you understand why is it hard to give up money to follow Jesus? Because to give up money to follow Jesus means I'm giving up control of my life. I, I, I'm conscious that to, to follow Jesus would be to hand over to him the reins of my life and let go of my control. To no longer be the in, independent, autonomous person who rules life their way, the way they want to do, but now actually to give it to someone else which is the very point. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying that very thing because he comes as our Lord, saying, I am the one you were made to, to rule your lives. Find those things that are making it hard for you to bow the knee as you ought. And for this man, he put his finger deeply on it. It was his wealth that gave him a sense of his own control and power that he couldn't let go of to entrust himself to another. I'll give you another thought that possibly gives rise to why it's so difficult for wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's the issue of identity, perhaps. Wealth gives me my identity. To have wealth and bring status and power. It gives me a place in the world. And to follow Jesus is to let go of my self-made identity and actually find myself now shaped by him as the one who gives me my identity. It's to give up something that gave me significance for someone I'm not sure in what they'll bring. I take it that's why verse 30 is in this episode where Jesus says, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Many who are first, who have their significance and place and status established for them in this world, will be last because they can't let go of what they've got. To follow Jesus wherever he might take them. And Jesus is alerting us here to the fact that in the end, they will end with nothing. It's exactly what he taught in Matthew chapter 16. What good is it to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? He comes pressing this upon us that these issues now aren't just about what will make you happy. 
These issues are about what will establish you into an eternity, into a new creation, where he is the key to that creation. But I want to offer too, it's more than just wealth that Jesus is talking about. If you look there in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth, according to our translation. But literally in the original language, it says this, he, he went away sad because he had many possessions. Now, it's not an inappropriate translation to say great wealth, but, but what he had was many possessions. And it's just a helpful little observation to pick up there that, what made it hard for him was wealth and the power that brought and the status that brought, but he had many possessions. That is to say, he had many things that invested him in this world. He had a great deal that tied him to this world. And to follow Jesus, to let go of all of that, to follow Jesus wherever he took him, would be to let go of those things that he'd been bound up with in this world. And that is a terrifying prospect. Now, in this context, it's effectively a literal follow. It's a, um, Jesus is literally walking along a road towards Jerusalem where he'll be betrayed, crucified, rejected. And to follow Jesus for this rich man was literally to leave everything behind and join him on the road. But it becomes a powerful picture and intentionally a picture of life for us today without the physical Lord Jesus amongst us. But what place does he have? How do I understand and think about him? Am I so bound in the things of this world? Is my identity so tied here? Is my control and sense of autonomy and power established by the things here that I cannot give them up to let Jesus be the one who shapes and rules and orders. Friends, I would urge you to reflect on these things. The, the essence of the life of a saved person is relationship with Jesus. The relationship that recognises the truth of who he is, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, that my life is to be grounded on him, my identity is to be caught up in him, nothing is to capture me like Jesus, my affections are to be ordered so that they are centred on him, not because of some arbitrary rule, but because of that's who he is. I urge you to reflect on these, it's, it, it's critical to make sense of these things in the larger sense of life, but if, I'm, if you are sitting in a house today and you are already someone who has taken on Jesus as your Lord, you've bowed the knee to him and given him the reins of your life, then I would encourage you to reflect perhaps today on the power of the things of this world to still hold on to you, the power of wealth, the power of possessions, the way in which you can still shape your identity. See, it might be that you don't think of yourself as having great wealth, but observing that he's talking about many possessions helps us see that really the deeper thing here is not whether you're wealthy or not, actually. It's whether you're caught up and bound up with the things of this world, with your own self-rule. It might be that you've actually chosen to throw away wealth and go the simple life, that path of choosing the simple life is still you in control of the path you want. 
And perhaps the Lord Jesus would say to you, uh, go, give up your simple life, come follow me. In the same way, it brings that similar challenge. I want to encourage you to reflect on these things, and particularly with the words of Jesus ringing in your ears, that you've got there, verse 26, the astonishing thing that he goes on to, and I want to now come to point five, the astonishing thing Jesus comes on to, which is um, the disciples have asked him, then who can be saved? If the rich person who seems so blessed from God can't be saved because they're so bound up in their wealth, who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer is, verse 26, with man this is impossible. With man this is impossible. Now if we stop there, this, this passage is just one of full of despair. The man goes away sad because he can't let it go and Jesus says it's impossible for man to gain the life of the age to come and where are we left? Well, wonderfully, we have the next words of Jesus who says, but with God, all things are possible. And with that final phrase, that final part of the sentence, Jesus takes us right to the great truth of the Christian message. The great truth about how you gain the life of the age to come. The great truth of how you enter the kingdom of God. How? By a gift of God. By a generous, gracious gift that God gives us to those that are unworthy. Oh, and here is, here is the balm for the soul. Here is the hope. You see, the man coming comes saying, what good thing must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus finishes the account by saying, there's nothing you can do. It only comes because God does the impossible. He is the God of grace and mercy. You see, there is the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the Christian message is that there is a God who is gracious, who sees a humankind whose heart is perverse and broken and captured by all the wrong things. But he comes to that world and he says, I'm going to do what you can't do because I'm a God of love. And he comes and he so loves us that he gives his only son. That whoever looks to him and not their own merits, whoever puts their confidence in him will find eternal life. Not everyone will enter eternal life. Not because God is malicious, not at all. But it is only for those who own the truth that they can't earn it. That their heart is so perverse, corrupted, fallen, that we can't do what we need to do. We can't even let go of the things we need to let go of. And it's with that person who comes with a broken, humbled heart, who throws themselves on the mercy of God, who can do the impossible, who cries out to God, like a little child you see it there in chapter 19 verse 14 let the little children come to me don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these why does the kingdom of heaven belong to children because children are humbled children are dependent children know their only hope is the parent who does it for them and there is the essence of the christian message 
It's not about my performance, my merit, my earning my way. It's God who comes to rescue me, who can do the impossible. Friends, do you feel your heart is tied to this world when it ought to be bound to Jesus? Do you find yourself aware that you have no hope before this God, that there is a thing you lack, that you lack by your own worth and merits? Wow, go to the wonderful verse of verse 26, with God all things are possible. God can do the impossible. He can grant the gift of forgiveness. He can grant the gift of a part in a life of the age to come to anyone who comes to him in humility. To anyone who is aware like a small child They've got nothing that commends them to this God. And the great glory of the Christian message in unique features to all religions is that it says our hope is grounded in the grace of God, not our efforts. It's for the weak and the blind and the unworthy. It's for the ones who let go of the things of this world, who look to Jesus, who imperfectly, yes, but seek to follow him. It's the ones who throw themselves on Jesus. Now, where does this leave us? Well, friends, this is a a very difficult time. But one of the great good things that can come out of it is that it can stir us to think the big questions of life. What do I need to do to gain the life of the age to come? The Christian message... There's nothing you can do to gain it. Your only hope is a God who can do the impossible. At the heart of being saved, entering the kingdom of God, is the grace of God who gives us what we don't deserve, who who gives to people who do lack, who gives to people what they can't gain themselves, the gift of life. Who is it for? those who recognise their lack, those who recognise that that of their own efforts, merit, strength, there is nothing they can do to earn it, that there is a rich mercy that comes from God to the childlike humble ones. You know, the Christian message is about a relationship. It's about a relationship with the God who has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to pay the penalty for us that we might be forgiven and saved. It's about calling on us to follow him now, hand the reins of our lives over to him. And if you have done that, the wonderful thing is that you've done that because God stepped into your life and opened you up to be able to do that. God softened your heart to actually look to him instead of yourself. Much to give thanks for if you are someone who has given yourself over to Jesus. If you aren't in that place yet, what do you do? Pray. Call out to this God that he might be merciful. Call out that he might do the impossible and soften a heart, soften our hearts, that we might come to him in humility and throw ourselves on him, the one who can save us. I'd urge you too, in response to all of this, to be on your guard, 
to be on your guard against the power of possessions, wealth, to captivate us, to take control of our lives, to arouse within us a need to be in control in such a way that it hinders our ability to submit ourselves to the gracious hand of God himself. How about I pray? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we we do thank you that you have given us a word that brings such insight and clarity into our lives, into our world. And pray, please, in the midst of all of this, that you might give us um, clarity about how it is that we can gain life with you. Help us, please, to to recognise that with us it's impossible, with you, the God who can do the impossible, there is a gracious gift to be given for those who come humbly to you. Help us, please, to look to Jesus, hand the reins of our life over to him, and entrust ourselves to him, the gracious, loving Jesus. We pray that you'd help us be on our guard. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.